Good morning, everyone. Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus's companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion? that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing in our series on the questions of Jesus, and each week what we're doing is we're looking at one of the many questions that Jesus raised with his disciples or with the crowds or a person that he encounters on the roadside, and we're studying these because they're not only questions that he asked people 2,000 years ago, you know, them back then and there, but these are questions that he asks us today. And here's the question that we're looking at this morning. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs? Let's pray. Let's pray before we begin. Jesus, we ask that you would come and give us grace in this time. We know you will be present because your word says that you dwell in your word. And that means when your word is proclaimed and explained and received, anything can happen. And so we do pray for a spiritual work to take place in these next few minutes. We ask that because that's why we're here, to encounter the living God, the savior of sinners, the redeemer of our souls and of our broken world. And so we pray that that God would come and glorify himself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's the night before Jesus would die for the sins of the world. He had, of course, just spent some time praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're familiar with the story. 
And now, as the narrative continues in verse 47, Jesus is handed over to the religious leaders by Judas, betrayed by his own disciple. And when he is seized and arrested, we're told, violence suddenly erupts. We're told in verse 51 that one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, that was Peter. The account found in John 18 mentions him by name, and I'm pretty sure he was aiming for more than just the guy's ear. And who could blame him? He was defending Jesus, his close friend, master, and Messiah. Besides, if a, a large crowd, as we're told, rolls up armed with swords and clubs, as we're told they did in verse 47, aren't they basically asking for a fight? But notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't grab a sword himself and, 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 and say to Peter, hey, you take the little guy and I got the big guy. He doesn't turn to his disciples and bellow, freedom! Instead, Jesus actually rebukes not one, but both groups. To Peter, he says in verse 52, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In other words, violence begets violence, don't you know? And to the armed mob, he says in verse 55, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus says no to a fight. You see, e even though they were squared off on opposite sides, both these groups are basically the same in one important way. They've fundamentally misunderstood the character of Jesus' kingdom. They thought he would establish his reign, or at least he would attempt to establish his reign by an exercise of raw power, by military conquest, by bloody violence. They thought he would advance his mission by force. When Jesus says in verse 55, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs? The word translated rebellion there often refers to armed insurrection and revolution. In Jesus' day, violent uprisings were common. Remember, at this time, ancient Palestine was under Roman occupation. And so militant Jews called zealots occasionally attempted to overthrow their Roman occupiers by force. Barabbas, if you're familiar with the name, who was later released from death row instead of Jesus, who was later crucified, Barabbas is described in Mark 15 
as an insurgent who murdered some Romans during one of these types of rebellions. See, the crowd who came to arrest Jesus that day saw him as a similar kind of violent insurrectionist. That's why they came with swords and clubs. And you know what? Peter and the other disciples were thinking nearly the same thing. That's why he cut off the dude's ear. He's thinking, now's our time. This is when Jesus rips off his nice guy outfit and now finally at last comes out, swords ablazing, comes out ready to kick some serious Roman butt. I mean, this is what he came to do. That's the Messiah, is it not? I mean, why else did we come to the capital city if not for an uprising in Jerusalem? But listen again to what Jesus says to Peter in verse 53. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Now, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 troops. And so Jesus is referring to a group of 72,000 angelic soldiers. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter... I'm not getting arrested now because of a lack of firepower. I command an invincible heavenly army. And if I wanted to defend myself, I could. I've got more power than 72,000 swords and clubs combined. But, he says in verse 54... If I did that, Peter, how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? With Jesus' arms bound together as he's about to be walked off to trial and eventually Roman execution. How then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must, must happen this way? What way, Jesus? What do the Old Testament scriptures say, Jesus? Well, going back to Daniel 7, we're told that the Son of Man would reign on his throne and his dominion would be an everlasting dominion, but only after suffering and being crushed and broken into pieces. And going back even further, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 reveals that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, would come and he would be pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. What kind of Messiah is this? And going back even further to the very beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 3 promises that the coming deliverer, Eve's greater son, would one day, yes, crush the head of the serpent and sin and death together with it. But in doing so, he too would be crushed, killed. He himself 
Beloved, it must happen in this way. Now let's be clear. Jesus' words here don't contradict the principle of self-defense. John Calvin, when commenting on this passage, was swift to defend the biblical right of self-defense against unjust violence, even though Jesus clearly relinquishes that right right here in this story, and he does so for our redemption. Nor does this passage undermine a state's legitimate exercise of force to establish justice and order, according to Romans 13. Nor, we should say, does this passage offer direct commentary or critique on the American Revolution. We probably need to say in light of this weekend's holiday, though it does tell us that Jesus' people shouldn't be dwelling on fantasies of bloody revolution, nor live with a day-to-day readiness for a reenactment of 1776. Because Jesus is crystal clear, his mission would be advanced in a different way. Jesus came to give life by his death. He would come not to wield a, a sword, but to suffer on a cross. His enemies would be conquered, yes, but by his grace, by his love. In verse 50, he called his betrayer Judas his friend, friend, friend. And according to Luke 22, he immediately healed the servant's wounded ear. Who does that? He would forgive his enemies rather than bludgeon them. He would come asking, am I a leader of a a rebellion? But you've come out with swords and clubs. And he raised this question because those who surrounded him, both his disciples and the crowd who came to kill him, his detractors, Everyone thought Jesus would display his righteousness and establish his kingdom by force and when necessary, by violence. And do you know what? So do we. Consider the alarming rise of political violence. According to recent surveys, between one quarter and one third of Americans across the political spectrum believe that violent protest against the government is sometimes justifiable. And that's up from 16% in 2010. And one in 10 survey respondents in America, 10%, believe that violence is justified right now. And we've seen these beliefs manifest themselves, haven't we? In actual incidents of violence, even in our own city. 
We saw, we saw it in the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of last year. We saw it in the assaults, looting, and destruction of property during the racial protests of 2020. More recently, we saw it in the foiled plot to assassinate a Supreme Court justice and the more recent vandalism of crisis pregnancy centers in town. My point in listing these is not to suggest any kind of moral equivalence among all of these different examples, but rather it's to suggest and illustrate that this is a growing problem everywhere and amongst every tribe. And sadly, in many cases, a commitment to Christian faith doesn't diminish, but rather reinforces one's support of political violence. According to one survey, white evangelical Christians were the religious group most likely to agree with the statement, because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots might have to resort to violence in order to save our country, with 26% of respondents, over one in four, saying that they agree. I mean, notice these are Americans who identify as followers of Jesus and who presumably believe that their moral vision for this, this nation is shaped by Scripture, who believe that they are advancing the righteousness of God in America. And yet, Jesus asks, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs. Last week, Pastor Yancey and I attended our denomination's annual meeting General Assembly in Birmingham, Alabama, and among other business, lots of business that was discussed, one item that was deliberated over was a statement that was proposed, one that encouraged the, the General Assembly, this gathering of pastors and elders around the country, encouraged the General Assembly to, quote, condemn political violence and intimidation in unlawful expressions, especially that which is illicitly done in the name of Christ, and to encourage members to seek peace and pursue it in the public square. In the end, the statement wasn't approved for various reasons, but those who supported it did so believing that this is a problem that must be addressed head on. Because too many Christians and too many churches, in fact, have begun to believe and think that Jesus' ends can be reached according to violent worldly means. That the agenda of Jesus, the priorities of Jesus, the righteousness and justice of Jesus is to be advanced by physical force and violence, indeed by any means necessary. And too many professing believers have begun to believe that the forces of unrighteousness and darkness are just so intractably overwhelming too overwhelming that we now must take up arms. To which Jesus might ask, 
do you think I can't call upon my father? And he'll at once, I mean, if this is the way that we need to go, like, I can't call upon my father to at once put at my disposal. 72,000 armed angels. And put that way, don't you see? We begin to see that it's a question of faith. What power do you believe is necessary that God is willing or unwilling to dispose in order for him to enact righteousness and truth and justice in this land? We're tempted to inflict physical force on others, aren't we, when we fail to believe in God's power to change things? Or perhaps it's God's timetable by which he plans to do his work. But if we succumb to this logic, as Jesus might have put it or did put it, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way, the way of love of enemies, the way of, of perseverance even against opposition, of persuasion, rather than coercion, the way of nonviolent protest if righteous protest is deemed necessary. Jesus' way. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs? And perhaps someone hearing this right now is saying to themselves, well, I have no intent or desire to engage in violent protest, so I guess Jesus isn't speaking to me. Not so fast. we got something for everybody here today. Because there's a second way I think we should apply this lesson. And it's what I might call other kinds of clubs that we wield. Other kinds of ways in which we try to get our way or advance our perception of Jesus' way by force, the force of intimidation, the force of pulling rank or appealing to title and formal authority in the workplace, in the civic place, or in your neighborhood, the ways in which we impose ourselves even in our interpersonal relationships, even in our romantic lives. Here's a question for us. How does the righteousness of God how does God's truth, God's beauty, get advanced and established in our lives, in our relationships, in our world? How? Truly, how? Too many of us answer that question or live the answer that, to that question with a show of what can only be rightly described as force bulldozing our way through life to get our way. And just to illustrate it a little bit more for us, briefly, let me point out the way in which we do that with our words. Violent words. Words that serve as clubs and swords where we try to change people by pressure, 
by command and demand, by threat, ever forgetting that in God's economy, in his kingdom, it's his kindness that leads people to repentance. With our words, we forget the wisdom of John Calvin, who said again about this passage, we are much more courageous and ready for fighting than for bearing the cross. We forget to heed the counsel, the wisdom of Proverbs 12, verse 18, that says, some speak rashly like the piercing of a sword. Right? The way in which we wield our words to get our way or to advance what we think is Jesus' way. Marshall Rosenberg, uh, years ago, wrote a book called Nonviolent Communication. And he said in regards to uh, the way that most of us communicate, especially in the presence of conflict, he says, while we may not consider the way that we talk to be violent, words often lead to hurt and pain, whether for others or ourselves. In other words, our basic go-to way of communicating oftentimes is rightly described as violent. He says we use punishment to try to change people's behavior, specifically by constantly blaming and criticizing. Violent communication. His invitation is in instead uh, to settle down into a new kind of pattern, a fourfold pattern, observation, feelings, needs, and requests. In other words, uh, what you need to do is not just to immediately blame or condemn. You need to just make observations uh, about what it is that the person is doing or that you are doing, about your dynamics. Uh, that you need to state your feelings in relation to what you observe, how you feel. Then share your needs, what it is that you really truly desire and want and then to make your request, would you be willing to do X, Y, Z more concretely? Whatever wisdom we might discover in the way that we communicate, what would it look like this week uh, for you to ponder about the ways in which you might be wielding words like a sword? And in your various conversations, in the workplace or at home, in the neighborhood, among people you love, and maybe among people that you do not love. That occasionally, will you allow your ears and your heart to hear Jesus ask you, ask us, hold on, am I leading a rebellion? That you've come out with swords and clubs. Uh, the way that you're speaking to your neighbor, the way that you're speaking to your child, the way that you're speaking to your coworker, the way that you're speaking to people in your head, even if it never makes it out of your mouth? Will you let Jesus ask you this week, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs? What, after all, do you think Jesus is leading and who do you think you're following that we come out so often with swords and clubs? Listen, friends, Jesus is not leading an insurrection or a, a rebellion. He's not leading a rebellion. He's leading a rescue. 
a rescue of sinners like you and me. He's leading the redemption of sinners who think they have the right to storm heaven itself. People that refuse to repent, people that stubbornly believe that they're right and inflict with all force upon all people and even against God himself, clubs and swords, seeking to win the game, to win the game, to win. But don't you know Jesus came with a cross, not a club. If you're in Christ, that's how you got saved. And if he did it any other way, you wouldn't have had a chance. Jesus died willingly, not reluctantly, not defending his life, but in fact, sacrificing it for you and me in love. And so we look to this Jesus then, don't we? This Jesus who shows us a different way, a better way, a way that's actually more abundant and abounding in power than we could possibly imagine. Here's good news. God's power to transform you, your friend, neighbor, and enemy, our present social order, your daily circumstances, God's power to change these things is greater than you can possibly imagine. God's power is sufficient. True, it works in mysterious ways. And true, his timetable is not our own. But his power is great and it works through ordinary means. The ordinary means of political process. The ordinary means of reconciliation and conversation. The ordinary means of holy community and dwelling with one another. Uh, the, the ordinary means of neighborliness and laying down our lives for our enemies. The ordinariness of neighbor love. Because if you don't believe in God's all-sufficient power, 12 legions and more worth of power, you will always be tempted to pick up your little toothpick and poke people around with it or your sword and kill people, maybe literally. Do you believe in God's power? So this is an invitation to trust, isn't it? To trust in the good news of God's resurrection power, of God's higher ways and his wisdom, to trust Christ rather than a club, to trust the suffering Savior, not a sword. To believe that the force of the fierceness of God's love for you and for this world is greater than the force of your little fists. God loves you, period. Jesus is committed to saving you. 
and this commitment is indomitable. He will fight for you. You need only to be still. So friends, this week and going forward in the future, will you hear your Savior ask you with all his beaming love, with all the confidence that he attracts and inspires from within you, with all his trustworthiness, with all his might, will you hear your suffering servant say, ask, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs? Who is Jesus to you today? Let's pray. Pierce our hearts, O Lord, and teach us. Teach us the way of love. Teach us the way of faith. Teach us to believe in your all-sufficient power. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.